step inside my living room Share a little talk By roads walked and lessons learned Keeping the flame of faith burning I wanna know where you've been What you found out Spread some light in the darkness Spread it all about In the height in the hat, put it all in the hat. Avram Rosenzweig began public speaking when he was five years old. Over the last five decades, Avram has mastered the art of public speaking. Today, Avram is a professional speechwriter and speech coach. He offers a wide selection of services that can assist you in preparing for public speaking events, speeches for family or professional occasions, a keynote, a memorial, or a simple toast. Avram can also coach you through articulation and presentation challenges. For all your speech writing needs, send Avram an email at info at hatradio.ca. That's info at hatradio.ca. Hi, and welcome back to Had Radio. This is Avram Rosenzweig, and this is episode 24. So today I'm going to do something which is a little bit different than I have done in the past. Today I am on my own. Uh, no guests, nobody in the studio, a.k.a. my condominium, except for my little orange tabby, Lily, the cat. I think I'm just going to talk, and I've decided that I should talk about what I know, which is not that much. But one thing I do know is about starting a nonprofit, an NGO, as we call them, non-governmental organization. And in my case, that NGO is called Via Hafta. It was started in 1996. And used to be referred to in its entirety as Via Hafta, the Canadian Jewish Humanitarian and Relief Committee. So, why did I start Via Hafta? Well, look, I come uh, from a family of people who were very much involved in the world, in what was what we call today in the Jewish world, Tikkun Olam, which is repairing the world. And we were exposed, my four sisters and I, very early on to the world outside of us. And what I mean by that is that it wasn't unusual at all for my father, who was the rabbi in Kitchener, Ontario, I think from 1954, I believe, till 1989 when he passed on. And of course, I've mentioned him in other podcasts to bring home people to live in our home who others might con consider to be outsiders or the strangers or the nasty ones among us to consider them as stray dogs. Sometimes these people would stay with us for a day or a night, you know, other times a week, sometimes a month maybe a year or even two. And there are definitely situations that come to mind of 
a couple of people, actually, who did stay with us for a lengthy period of time. Now, my mother was the big hero in this. She was what, what is called the Rebitson. A Rebitson is someone who is married to a rabbi. And I often say that while a rabbi pursues his passion of leading a flock by securing accreditation in again once again in the Jewish educational system that's called smicha a rabbi will get a certification after going through a lengthy process you know what a woman's smicha is somebody who marries a rabbi it's her love for her man that's what it is and i mentioned this when i spoke to rabbi Karopkin in a previous episode where he went on so beautifully about his wife and how much she has added to his life and to his career. So my mother was that. Her smicha was her love, her respect, and her appreciation for my father. My father's name was Shruga Fievel Rosenzweig. In English, they used to call him Philip, which he didn't like. <laughs> uh, he was a true blue Jew, and that's what he wanted to be recognized as, and that's how he wanted to be represented. However, I guess Philip was one of those names they used in public school when he was growing up in Toronto. Ontario, Canada, and my mother's name was Gitel Fremed, which means light, and in English, her name was Gertrude or Gertie, and again, the poor woman hated that name. From time to time, I'll meet somebody in the area here in Toronto, um, and they'll, they'll, they'll have known my mother, and they'll say, oh, your mother was Gertie. <laughs> And I'll say that is correct. If you want to see a really, really insightful piece about my mother uh, on Google, in Google, uh, go do a search for uh, Rebitson Gertrude Rosenzweig or Gietel Rosenzweig, G-I-T-E-L, Gietel. I did an interview with her. It was a visual. It was on TV. It was called Via Hafta Television. And you'll see my mother. She was very flamboyant. And she was full of life. She passed away about four years now, uh, almost four years ago now. And she really was effervescent. <laughs> she would wear those big flowery hats. And she was a very good dresser. Uh, she liked high heels. And she was the belle of the ball when she went out. But that being said, she also worked inordinately hard. Both my parents came from families who had managed to escape Eastern Europe as the hatred was building there. I think probably somewhere around the 1910, somewhere in that area. And they came from similar areas in Poland. Bajacin was one of the small towns or villages that one of my grand grandparents came from. Um, and these were little, little tiny places, you know. If we were to pass through them, if we looked for the comparable in Ontario, you know, it's like Snowball, Ontario. Although I don't know if that's a good example, but you're talking about places where there would be, I don't know, 1,000, 2,000, 3,000 people. And a percentage of them were Jewish, likely a, a, sometimes a high percentage. And their lives were very, very difficult and very, very challenging. Eastern Europe particularly with the rise of hatred, was not a very pleasant place to be. And so they emigrated. And in the case of my family, they came to Canada. And they made a life here. 
So my father's father was a tailor, and he used to work on what we used to call mantles, which I believe are coats and those type of that type of clothing for women. At one point, his father, Meyer, started a business, and unfortunately, it went bankrupt. So he had to go back, and he had to work for somebody else. From what I understand, Meyer wasn't too happy for the rest of his days. Much of that obviously was caused by the fact that he just didn't succeed in business the way others had. But there were three boys. Meyer had lost his first wife. Through his first wife, he had a little girl by the name of Sylvia. Sylvia eventually married Ben, Ben Fine. I'm actually living in Sylvia and Ben Fine's condominium. And then when Meyer got remarried a few years later to marry, they had three boys. And the oldest boy was Bernard or Beryl. The second one was Fievel, my father, Philip. And the third one was David. Now, Fievel and David are gone. They've died. But Uncle Beryl is still alive and he lives in New York. He's a very unique fellow. It's quite the type A guy. He really is. He really is. He's one of those people who's constantly growing and changing, even at his age, which has to be around 92. And I spoke to him a little while ago. I don't call him as much as I should. Perhaps I'll change that. Phone those people in your life who are older. And I said to him, so Uncle, how's it going? He says, well, I'm writing my book, you know, and it's going okay. Not exactly how I wanted to. But I really have to bear down because I'm hoping to write a trilogy. <laughs> so, you know, I've been struggling to get one book out <laughs> for God knows how long. I'm 59. I've probably been trying for 30 years to finish writing a book. And here's Uncle Beryl, who's like 92, and then he's writing a trilogy. So God bless him. But that's the sort of family that my father grew up in. That's the context that's necessary to help you understand who he was. It was an irreligious family until they became religious. And I believe that happened with Uncle Beryl, and then it's worked its way through the family. Some of them became what would be considered very right-wing religious, like my father, who ultimately started an organization called the Aguda, which still exists in Toronto and other major metropolitan cities in North America and in Israel. And my Uncle Beryl was involved in... Mizrahi, which would be considered modern Orthodox. My uncle David moved to Israel with six kids in 1969, ultimately making their home in Jerusalem. And he had a certain business savvy about him. He was an accountant here. Uh, always sort of struggled, but eventually brought it around through his aliyah, which means mm -hmm. to go up which means to move to Israel. It's a beautiful term if you think about it, aliyah. I, I, you don't just say I'm moving to Israel. That would be pretty standard as, as if I'm moving to Vancouver. But aliyah means la'alot, to go up to Israel. And the inference obviously is that you're going higher in life, which is a beautiful concept if you've been in Israel, if you've seen Jerusalem, if you've seen Eilat, if you've seen Tel Aviv and Haifa and Netanya and Nahariah, and all the beautiful outlying areas, you'll understand why Judaism would say 
I'm making Aliyah. I'm moving up. And it is, again, because you're moving up to holiness or you're moving up to beauty, however you want to define your movement to Israel. It is something very, very special, something that I would ultimately like to do. But I have a son who's 13, so that's not going to happen for a, a long, long time. So the Rosenzweig family became religious. Auntie Sylvia never did. <laughs> they always, I think they always try to push her that way, but she never really did, you know? Oh, she was a lovely lady. She really was. She was an artist, and I have one of her pictures here on the wall. I think, you know, we all see ourselves as a certain animal, you know, or a certain bird. We all see ourselves in a certain light. This picture, which Auntie Sylvia painted, it's really gorgeous. And it's a picture of a ballet dancer, and next to the ballet dancer is a swan. Now, I don't think it's an original. She used to say, you know, dear, I'm not really an artist. And I would say, Sylvia, why do you say that? And she would say, because I don't really paint original stuff. I use postcards. I just copy what I see in a postcard. I know, Sylvia, it doesn't matter. You still have technique. You're still able to bring colors together that work. And that's a real feat. I'm an artist, too. And uh, there's aspects of what she did, which I, I don't even come close to. She was very much into realism. I've struggled so long to try to paint pictures that reflect something very real. My stuff is impressionist, impressionism through and through. So, but, but she was sweet. She was sweet that way. Um, and she had some lovely pictures. And we used to put them up in our home, I remember, in Kitchener. And I think the rest of our family would do some uh, similarly. And she, but she never became religious. She never, she never had an interest in it. And um, I, I think that uh, she was pretty loyal to not being religious. <laughs> and like she marched to the beat of her own drum. I think sometimes she would go to synagogue, but probably mostly not. Here's the interesting thing about Sylvia too: is that she smoked for seventy-one years. <laughs> I think by the time she became, I don't know, mid to eight, late eighties. She died in her 90s. Her doctor told her, um, you know, Sylvia, don't quit smoking. <laughs> it's not good. It's not going to be good for you. <laughs> right? And you think about it, like, when would you ever hear that from your doctor? You know, I was actually with Sylvia when she passed. I was with her when she died. And that was really quite an experience. I said to her caregiver, who was with us as well, I said, what an honor it is to be with Sylvia when she was born, obviously, she was with her mother. <laughs> now that she's passing, she's with us. So those are kind of the bookends. We are one of those bookends. And just as sacred and beautiful as it was for her to be born from her mother's body, the idea that we're here has to be sacred and holy as well, sort of bidding her adieu, wishing her well. You know, it was interesting. I remember the caregiver didn't want to let go of Sylvia. So every time, if you've been with someone who's died, you'll know what I'm talking about. Basically, you're looking at the machine the whole time. You know, that machine with the squiggly on it, right? And you're watching it. And every time it kind of dips or stops or slows down, you're going, oh, shit, man, here it goes, you know. Like this person's about to die, you know, and eventually that's exactly what happened. And it's called flatlining when they actually go. But every time the machine starts to flatline or go that way, the caregiver would kind of pull her back. Come on, Sylvia, you know, don't go yet. You know, you still have a life. 
And finally, I pulled her aside. I said, look, this is, Sylvia's old. She doesn't talk anymore. She gave that up. Once I remember taking my son to see her, and she was just lying in bed, and we'd have to create conversation. And my son was about four or five years old, and he, and he sort of asked me to come down to his level. you know. So I sort of bend down, and he whispers in my ear. He goes, Daddy, why does Sylvia need a mouth? <laughs> and I'm like, yeah. She didn't at that point, but she had one, so you know we kept it there. But anyway, so I said to the caregiver, I go, look, she she's done. She's finished. Her life is over. She doesn't want to live anymore. And once again, if you've been with somebody who's at that stage, you'll, you'll understand what I'm saying. And I said, you have to let her go. Now, what I understood later on was that she herself, the caregiver, had lost her mother at some point in her life an early stage of her life. And this woman was so devo devoted and loyal to Sylvia that I'm assuming that there were aspects of her relationship with her which were almost maternal, whereby Sylvia was in some ways, in a little way perhaps, her mother. The woman who took care of her, by the way, the caregiver was a Filipino woman. And I, I really want to take this opportunity to just to send a huge shout out to all the Filipino caregivers who have been involved in my family, whether it be with my mother, with her second husband, Marcus, and others whom we know within the family, maybe cousins, extraordinary human beings, extraordinary caregivers. I mean, their ability to empathize, to sympathize, to physically take care of an individual goes way beyond what the normal person can do. I know my level of caregiving. I mean, my sisters will kind of laugh at me when things got really tough with my mom, who was sick for about a year, I, you know, I would leave. <laughs> you know, that's what it would say on my resume, left his patience, you know. But, and my sisters were very good at it. We all sort of had our own area, I guess, that we were responsible for. I spoke, I talked to my mom a lot. She lived upstairs for me. I was in 704 and she was in 804. So we would spend a lot of time together. It was a big honor, really, to be with her. I, I guess it was the last four years of her life. And we would kind of check in every day. In the beginning, we, we sort of kept our distance. I did and she did. It's like my mom, you know, I got the sense from her. It's like, hey, son, you're moving into my building. That doesn't mean you're going to encroach upon my life. And I would say, hey, mom. I'm moving into my building here, and guess what? It doesn't mean that we're going to, you know, be sort of intertwined. And it doesn't, it doesn't mean that we're going to, you know, see each other every day. But anyways, push come to shove, we did. And we had a real nice relationship, and it was an honor for me to be with her for those last four years, especially because I left home when I was 13 years old. And I went to private Jewish school, so I never really lived with my parents again after that only intermittently or on the weekends, sometimes for holidays. And I had a chance to hang with my mother and she had a chance to be with my son. They too had a very interesting relationship. <laughs> Both of them were very, um, what's a nice way of saying it, hard-headed. <laughs> I remember they used to play hockey in the hall upstairs. And my son was is, is very competitive, was very competitive. And he would try to score, you know, take a slap shot on Booby on grandma 
and sometimes score, and then sometimes she would try. She was also very athletic and very competitive, and she would shoot and she would score, and both of them would get, she'd get very happy, and my son would get very angry, and she'd go, come on here, come on over here, son, give me a kiss, and he would say no, and she'd go, it's your loss. Oh, I go, Mom, don't, don't talk like that to him, please. <laughs> Just let him be. But anyways, that's who they uh, were and are, um, hard-headed people, but there seemed to be something very powerful about that. Anyways, just to go back, we were talking about Sylvia's caregiver and the Filipino people. I uh, I think it behooves all of us to thank those individuals who came into our life and for all intents and purposes became a third parent, another brother, another sister. You know, whoever they were and however that relationship played out, let's face it. Raising our children was often the task in part of the nanny. Now, you know, don't kid yourself. I wrote an article once for the Canadian Jewish News, of which I've been doing since 2001. And it's really Canada's only Jewish newspaper. And I wrote about how important it is to recognize how much the Filipino people have given to the Jewish people in the West and really around the world. There are Filipino people who are in Israel as well and in other such places. I got some criticism on it. People don't like to believe that there are others in the world who are helping to raise their children. Now, that's a bunch of hooey because everybody knows that it takes a village to raise a child. And if your village is composed of or made up of or some of the members are Filipino nannies, or Filipino caregivers, you're damn lucky. You should be appreciative every single day and look up at the sky and thank God for what you have had or what you have in your life because uh, they just simply know how to interact. Yes, I'm not saying that about every single Filipino. For those of you out there who are saying, oh, I know Filipinos who are not like nice. Yes, I, I understand that. But my, my point is, for a Filipino who goes into the caregiving business, they do a hell of a job. And kudos to them and accolades to them. And a great big bear hug from me to them. And hopefully I can do it on behalf of you as well. So that was my father's side of the family. Eventually they became all religious. Uh, eventually they were all involved in some form of leadership. Their brothers were anyway. And ultimately my father ended up in Kitchener in 1954, becoming the rabbi there and uh, staying there until his death in 1989. Now, my mother's side was a little bit different. Her father, Moshe Chaim, and her mother, Hilda or Hinda, also came from Eastern Europe. But they lived their lives very simply. My, my grandfather, Zadie, we used to call him, who, by the way, died, I think, two weeks before my bar mitzvah. So my mother got up from Shiva. Shiva is a, a seven-day period of mourning after someone passes who's very, very close to you. And then she had to go about preparing for the bar mitzvah. It was really quite sad. And I couldn't wear my white tuxedo. <laughs> you know, that was 1973. But they were really simple people, simple and lovely people. Their house, you know, smelled like mothballs. And, and you guys might remember that who come from uh, the same era as I do. I remember the bread box that my booby had. We stayed over there when my parents went to Israel. And it was uh, quite an experience. But, but 
But again, you know, these were individuals who had come from Eastern Europe. They were people who had lost family members in the Holocaust. And my grandmother really was quite quiet. I often wondered whether she could speak English at all. But they were from the old school, you know, like we like to say. They came from the old school. The Heim, as we say in Yiddish, or the Haim, which which translates directly to, to mean the home. And, you know, their needs were not great. They lived in a little house on Winnette here in Toronto, which is around Eglinton and Bathurst area. And it was a very modest place. But once again, you know, you would walk in there and it would really epitomize one's sense of home, of being home. There's great security, great, great sense of safety and love that you would find in Bubi and Zadie's home. Zadie had a sister and her name was Tzvetl. These are great names. <laughs> you know, if you read some of the Yiddish writers translated into English, uh, it's really quite something. <laughs> you know, to hear to hear the names of people who, who grew up in Poland and Russia, Lithuania, and Eastern Europe, you know. Maryasha. That was my other grandmother, Mary, and, and, and her real name was Maryasha. It's stuff that you simply would not... You know, names that you simply would not name your children today. Although sometimes in the very ultra right wing community, you will find names like peril, you know, which sounds like perilous. Right. But more often than not in the Jewish community uh, or outside of it, you, you know, those names which were very much in vogue way back in the 1900s, they don't get translated to this day. You know, and, and, of course, there were no Britneys growing up in Eastern Europe in 1910 or 1920. So the names of our grandparents and the names of our uh, great uncles and aunts were all uh, would all be very, very foreign, as an example, to my son, you know, today. But that being said, so I remember once staying at my uh, Bubi and Zadie's house and my parents had gone away. I think this was the biggest trip of their life. They, they went to Israel, and they also went to Europe. So they went to France. Um, I'm not quite sure where else they went, but I do know that it was a big trip. So my sisters and I stayed at Bubi and Zadie's, and we were all very homesick. Um, <laughs> and I think that translated for me into getting nosebleeds. Either that was me or my sister. And I would wake up in the morning, my entire pillow would be covered with blood. So that's one thing I remember about staying at Booby and Zadie's. Again, lovely, lovely people. But it was sort of like a foreign environment in there for a five or six-year-old kid. And I also remember, I, I, I don't know, I guess I had some stomach challenges or problems, which doesn't surprise me at all. <laughs> you know, if, if you're a Jew, you, uh, you, you have colitis or Crohn's, one or the other. And that starts early on very often. And, and I just remember my booby and my Zadie and my uncle and my aunt standing over me uh, putting a suppository, uh, you know, in my bum. I, I distinctly remember that. So it and I don't remember I don't remember it as being pleasurable at all. So uh, th those were my memories of that trip. But my aunt, my mother had two brothers. One was Morris or Menasha, And Menasha was a really good guy. He was an accountant. He did quite well for himself in life. 
and he was athletic, just like my mother was, um, and he was known for his physical prowess. I remember when Menasha or Morris went into the hospital later on in life, uh, you know, when he started to get sick, you know, you know, when that happens around 75, 80, what have you. And I remember he was lying on a bed at Toronto General with his shirt off. And I looked at him and he was this warrior of a man. He had a hairy chest, a big, big, big chest. And he looked so powerful and so strong. And I thought, my God, that's who he is. That's who he was. He was physically strong. He was mentally strong. He was the man who really went out there and decided that he was going to make a life for himself. And he did, you know, and he raised two kids, two girls. Uh, he had grandchildren. His wife, Ruthie, was also highly accomplished, great pianist. She was very much involved with her temple. And she passed away early on, but, you know, he stayed in there. And he and my mother used to get together every Monday afternoon for music. Um, a music musical time together they love music and again my grandfather uh, was a wonderful man he worked in a slipper factory for 40 years making slippers but he was also what they called a shtickle chazen that means he was a little bit of a canter I remember once finding a record that he had made I don't remember what song he had sang but I heard him sing and you know it's kind of the scoop out there was sort of grapevine was that he had studied under Kuzovitsky in Europe prior to coming to Canada. Kuzovitsky was one of the greatest chazanim, one of the greatest cantors ever. If you want to know a lot about cantorial work, listen to my interview with Aaron Ben Shushan. It was an, it was an episode that I did early on. And you really hear from a fascinating man who worked really, really hard to sort of synthesize Sephardic and Ashkenazi liturgy, which means prayers and songs from the east like morocco with prayers and songs from europe and he really is one of the only people who has done that and done so successfully he actually sings in that episode i think three or four songs some of his own compositions interesting i asked him if he had ever come up with any lyrics and his response was no so you think about it you're a singer songwriter well, what do you mean you don't write lyrics? You only write the music? You know, well, that's what Elton John did with Bernie Toppin, but there was someone writing lyrics. He goes, yes, because my lyrics are prayers. So he would take Adon Alam, which is the final prayer that we say on the Sabbath, which is beautiful liturgy. And he would create a song around that. So li listen to that episode. So my cousin, my grandfather was a shtikla cousin, and... Therefore, music was in my mother's blood, in Menashe's blood, and also their brother, Meyer. He also loved music. But Menashe or Morris used to get together with my mother, Gietel, or Gert, on Monday afternoons, and they would listen to records. I remember going, asking if I could come one Monday afternoon, because, you know, it's one of those things that's, that's almost uh, sacred. You know, it's like you have to be a special guest to be invited into the inner sanctum. And I asked if I could come, and sure enough, they invited me to come. And I remember there being, like, crackers that my uncle put out. You know those crackers? I think uh, 
they they have kind of a vanilla taste to them. <laughs> They're good if you dip in like a coffee or whatever. And while you don't really like them, you eat all of them, <laughs> you know, and then you want more. But you're never really comfortable to ask for more. So, you know, you just kind of you're starving, even though you're not for the rest of the session. But anyways, so we would sit there and we would listen to operatic music. We would listen to Broadway and Hollywood music. There was never anything like rock and roll to them. That was just nonsense. I don't remember my mother ever listening to a Bob Dylan even or my uncle. But they delighted, absolutely delighted in the musicals. Hello, Dolly was a big one, of course. And they would listen to sometimes the entire side of an album. If they really, really were seriously into it, they would listen to the whole album. That's what they would do during a particular session on Monday. Or sometimes they would just choose a song, you know. And everything from that era seemed to be interesting to them. Mary Poppins, an album that they would listen to. And that afternoon was really a special one for me. I think it became part of my own personal narrative, uh, something that I always remembered. And music is in my heart, too. And it's something that I uh, cherish. So often, I'll just sit here at my computer, you know, and I'll just go on YouTube and try to find new music that I haven't heard before, listen to a lot of the old stuff. I'm, I'm a real big blues guy. I mean, if, you, if you're going to play me buddy guy stuff, I'll just, uh, 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 you know, I'll, I will be your audience for hours. B.B. Uh, King. Um, I love also some of the, the down south rock and roll like Leonard Skinnerd, And, uh, of course, people, as I mentioned before, like Elton John. Neil Young, you know, I'm I'm becoming one of those old timers, you know. So it was really quite delightful to be part of that. My mother's other brother was Meyer. You know, Meyer Meyer died. Uh, it, it's probably about a year and a half or two years ago now. He was a very very handsome man. They were all good looking, but Meyer was. Someone just compared Meyer to I think Clint Eastwood. And he was tall, or at least tallish. Remember, that was a smaller generation. <laughs> I guess Meyer must have been about six feet. Um, his, his son, Robbie, you know, who I'm close with, also a very handsome guy. And Meyer was a pitcher. And he was an outstanding pitcher. Uh, I, I Again, you know, you hear a lot of stories as you go. One story that I heard was that he was scouted. What does that mean? I don't know. I'm not sure who he was scouted by. Maybe a AAA team in some southern state or maybe a major league team. But, you know, he never went out, I think, for the tryout. And I have friends, actually. I went to Yeshiva, a private Jewish school, with someone also, a very big fellow, who was uh, who had an arm that you would stay away from. I mean, when he would throw you the ball... You would try not to catch it because it hurt so much. You might have someone, a buddy like that in your life. Or when he would take a slap shot. I remember I played goalie once uh, for our yeshiva team, and he wound up at the blue line and took a shot, and I caught it in this sort of old, decrepit glove. And I got so pissed off, and I go, like, what are you doing, man? What are you, crazy? You can kill me, right? And he would sort of laugh. <laughs> you know, that's the way we were when we were teens. It's like jackass, the show Jackass. Like you start laughing your head off when people get hurt. But Meyer, Meyer really was a great pitcher from what I understand. 
unfortunately, in his last year or two, he uh, he had dementia or Alzheimer's. And I remember meeting with him for lunch and my cousin Rob, and I thought, you know what, this is going to be a challenging lunch, you know, because communicating with him is going to be difficult. So I thought, why not bring something along, almost like a prop that Uncle Meyer can relate to and that can sort of create some sort of communication between us or encourage communication between us. So sure enough, I brought a hardball, a baseball. My son plays baseball and we had a bunch lying around. I brought one and I, I actually left it uh, with Uncle Meyer when we uh, parted ways that day. But anyways, it really did make the lunch. <laughs> he was he held the ball as pitchers do, you know, sort of with that fork in that fork position, like two ting- two fingers on the seam. I think it's called the two finger seam throw or the four finger seam throw. I'm not too familiar with this stuff. Um, he would show me, you know, the proper way, you know, to sort of move your wrist when you were throwing a fastball. Um, or he didn't talk to me at all. He just sort of concentrated on the baseball and it made him very happy. Uncle Meyer was an interesting guy because he had a, he did have a joyous disposition. And, and when he had dementia or in the latter part, you know, his last days, he was a happy fellow who had dementia. It's an interesting thing about that condition or disease, illness. I think that it kind of brings out in you who you are. So if a person's kind of angry, you know, they become angrier. If a person's a happy sort of go lucky person, that's how they are. Now, is that a rule? Is that a law? No, but I have seen that. And I understand if people are saying out there, Alvaro, you're, you're way off on this. And I accept that, but I'm just telling you what I've seen. So, so that was Uncle Meyer. And when we were kids living in Kitchener, my four sisters and I and my parents, you know, the uncles and aunts, they used to come out. Meyer was married to Ethel, beautiful woman. And they have a daughter too, Barbara. And all of them would come out to Kitchener and uh, we would hang out with our cousins. We were closer with my father's side than my mother's side. I think that had to do with the fact that my father's side was religious. And there was there was a certain, I think, a certain elitism in that, you know, well, we're religious and they're religious, so therefore we have much more in common and they'll have a greater influence on that on us. I kind of regret that. I think that my, my uncles and aunts and cousins on my mom's side you know, they were good people. They really were. They were good people. Uh, what we would call in Yiddish menschlich. I wish we would have spent more time with them. But later on in life, especially when when the parents started to get sick, and, and this happens quite a bit in life, we we did start spending more time with that side of the family. And I think that we've all benefited through it. So that's my mother. And she uh, loved entrepreneurialism. Uh, She delighted in the fact that she worked in a manufacturing environment in Spadina prior to marrying my father in the early 50s. She talked about that a lot. It was a really big deal to her. She saw herself as being very good with numbers. I used to I I used to be with her and my son and I would just throw out multiple multiplication questions three times nine and you know, you would think that Booby would sort of give my son the opportunity to answer, but that that's not who she was. <laughs> Three times nine, and she go twenty-seven. I go, Ma, let Noah answer. <laughs> Four times eight, you know, and she go thirty-two. I go, Ma, stop. <laughs> <You know? laughs> 
<laughs> but but anyways, at the end of it, like I said, that love kind of developed between them, a hard-headed love that was very particular to them, but works. You know, there's not one type of love. And, and I, it's interesting that I say works because it's almost always exists today. But you know that love never, never ends. It never stops. So they uh, they did truly love one another. So my mom delighted in the fact that she worked in these environments. And um, it was something that I think that she probably would have, would have continued at had they both stayed in Toronto after their marriage on some level. I mean, she did raise children, five of them, but the business world was really interesting to her. And she also was very, very interested in Toronto. And of course, Toronto for her was downtown Toronto. And she used to tell my sisters and I about how her father used to take her on the Sabbath, on Shabbat, into Queens Park. And they would watch the squirrels, you know, and they would see the beautiful trees and the people walking through it, you know, sometimes hand in hand. Uh, even to this day, when I'm driving downtown, I drive past Queens Park. I, I think about my mother and I think about her father. You know, our memories are kind of interesting because you can actually see the image that might have existed or close to have existed. I can actually see my mother, my, my little mother, when she was four or five years old, walking hand in hand with my Zadie, Moshe Chaim, or sitting on the bench, you know, and he telling her stories or perhaps singing, and she going on and on and on as kids go, asking why after why after why. I can see those images. But her eyes really were wide open when it came to metropolitan Toronto, I think she was a warrior of my mother, so she made the best of Kitchener, Ontario in all of her 37 years there. But Toronto really was the place that she wanted to be. And I think, you know, when we talked about New York or we talked about France, Paris, um, I think the grandeur of those places really gripped my mother. So Gitol and Fievel got together. They created these little bambinos. They created an environment within our home, which was that of, uh, I think, in something which was shaped by kindness and goodness. That was, those were the roots of the Ahavta. Th those were the roots of the nonprofit that I started in 1996. That was my reason for starting it because that's who I came from. Those are my roots. And my roots were roots of tikkun olam, which was repairing the world, or an adherence to Torah and the precepts of giving, of kindness, of doing nice things for others. You know, the fundamental, or the most important line in the Torah, as well as in the New Testament, is do unto others as you would have them do to you. Um, probably It's probably in the Quran as well, although I, I don't know the Quran. And that's what they live by. And we were exposed directly to that concept, to the reality of it, to the extent that when I came to Toronto year, years later, when I was 13 years old, and I went to private Jewish school here in Toronto, each one of us would come to Toronto from Kitchener when we turned 13, I, I had a difficult time understanding the people 
who I went to school with and their families because I didn't see that. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that they weren't good or kind people, but I didn't see people opening up their doors for others. And I realized later on that that is very unique. And there's a very particular type of person or persons who do that. And, and even today, just think about it. You know, those individuals who you know who will take somebody in or who will become a foster parent or who will adopt a child. I know this guy <laughs> who's, you never thought for a moment that his heart would be so big and that his wife would be so generous of spirit. But I think from their days, early days of marriage, I don't know, 20s, in their 20s, till probably a couple of years ago, mid-50s, they had fostered dozens of children. And I often ask him about this. His name is Sid. He doesn't really like to talk about it. It's very intimate and private. But he just felt as though this was the right thing to do. And he felt as though he himself was very blessed. So he wanted to give over of those blessings. And if you think about it, what? yeah, exactly. Like, why not? Why aren't we all doing that? <laughs> you know, why aren't we giving away more than we give away? Why aren't we sharing more than what we're sharing? And, you know, this might sound very uh, uh, naive, but, but it's not. I mean, we live in the greatest time in history, I think, and probably the greatest place in history, I think. When you go into your metro or your no frills or your Sobeys, just for a moment, stand in front of the vegetable and fruit counter and count how many different types of apples there are. Take a look at how many different types of peppers there are. Take a look at the bags and bags and bags of celeries and radishes. And say to yourself, geez, how much of this can I take? Well, guess what? You could take as much as you can afford. And guess what? You can come back the next day and take more. This is a new thing in history, and it is very, very specific to us. Never take that for granted, man. Our blessings are gargantuous. So Sid and his wife came along. They said, damn, we're going to do this. And they did. I think nowadays, by the way, they're taking in dogs. <laughs> really? Like, I think they just got fed up with the family services and how they operate. You know, you can imagine there's probably a lot of bullshit that goes along with it. So I think they stopped at some point and, and, and now they'll take in stray dogs. It's interesting that they just have this drive to take in a, a stray something. So now, now it's dogs, now it's animals. But that, that's how really my father was, and that's what he instilled in my mother and the rest of us. We had a, a woman and her daughter who lived with us for a number of years and really ultimately became like our family. They were lovely. They really were. My father had met the mom. Her name was Kathy at university. And again, it turns out she had a daughter, Debbie, who was also a very sweet girl. Um, she was a single mom, Kathy was, and she came home uh, with my father, I guess, for a Sabbath or what have you. And ultimately, she moved in. She was very, very beautiful, statuesque. Now, I was probably five or six or seven years old when I first met her. Uh, Debbie was a couple years younger than me. And then, of course, there were my sisters who were older than me. But when you're little, everybody's tall and everything is big. I remember going back to my house on Lydia Street, 169 Lydia in Kitchener, 
and thinking, oh, man, I cannot wait to see these huge hills in the backyard. <laughs> you know, I, I just remember as a child, you know, almost like Olympic, Olympic hills uh, where I would slide down on a toboggan or what have you. Anyways, I went back and guess what? The, the hills were virtually non-existent. But as a little one, you know, everybody's big and every, everything is large. And Kathy was statuesque, man. She was tall. She was beautiful, stunning. She was an elegant woman, you know, like Catherine Hepburn sort of type. And she would wear these beautiful, beautiful, long fur coats, which, of course, you know, one doesn't do today. Uh, and she would put on her makeup so, so well. And her hair would often be up in a bun. Um but not only that, she smelled like the perfume that she used was uh, uh, seductive, even for a six or seven year old. I know that sounds bizarre or weird, but it's true. I mean, think back to when you were a kid and the first time you saw a beautiful woman or a very, very handsome man. I remember the aftershave that they used, the effect that it had on you, you know, very often we think, oh, that's pretty cool. You know, that's a good smell, man. And then later on in life, we start to use the same sort of stuff. But Kathy was really was gorgeous. And she was like an older sister. I, I, she really was. And we would talk to her about stuff and sit on her lap and she would tell us stories. We came very close with Debbie. I remember also I got very jealous of Kathy because she was spending more time with my sisters. But it was all of that. You know, it's dynamics that happen in a home. And in our case, it was with the five siblings plus, you know. And who knows, there may have been someone else who came to live with us. So the place was very busy, and my parents were certainly not rich, that's for sure. Not at all. It was pretty damn hot on Lydia Street. I remember there's no air conditioning, right? <laughs> so when I started Via Huffton in 1996, after thinking about its mission statement for two years, it uh, was not a huge leap for me. It really was not a huge leap. You know, before I uh, continue on about Via Huffton, and its creation. I, I do want to mention a dear friend of mine. This is like a, this is like a commercial break. Uh, her name is uh, Neely, and she lives in Israel. I knew her from her days in Toronto. This is where she was born. She, and a few years ago, she made Aliyah, which you, you will remember is the word for moving to Israel, but literally means going up to Israel. And she and her husband bought a and b in the northern part of Israel, which is absolutely stunning. Well, being the creative type, she also bought a loom, L-O-O-M. And she began making things on her loom, i.e. weaving. So when my son's bar mitzvah was coming up, I needed a, uh, a talit, a prayer shawl, which is a religious garment that one would wear during services uh, that was vegan. Now, not that he'd be eating it, but something that was not wool. And the vast majority of talits that you find will be made out of wool. And of course, there are, there are fringes on it, strings, and they're wool as well. So my friend Vicky went to Israel and she said, you know what, let me speak to Neely. Maybe she can make a talit out of uh, another material that's vegan. And indeed, Neely said that she would. So she created a stunningly beautiful talit made out of cotton, and uh, Vicky was able to bring it back, and ultimately it was presented to my son at his bar mitzvah by his grandparents. And I have it, uh, and it's really 
something that's so incredibly, uh, uh, almost holy. And I say this because it was made by Neely, who's a beautiful person, in Israel, again, which is, you know, a holy country. And uh, the garment itself is a spiritual, used for spiritual purposes. So my point is, is that if you're looking for a talit of any type or a vegan talit, uh, let me know at info at hatradio.ca and I'll let Neely know and you can uh, perhaps have her make one for you. You can order them and they're reasonably priced as well, okay? So that's info at hatradio.ca. So as I was saying, starting Via Hafta was not a huge leap for me because it was in my blood. It was part of my DNA. The mission statement for Via Hafta was to encourage all Jews and all peoples to play a role in Tikkun Olam, which is repairing the world. That's where I came from, you know? Like, it's not surprising that a kid will aspire to become a doctor when his dad or his mom or his dad and his mom are doctors. I mean, that happens very often. I know lots of kids like that. Because what you grow up in is what seeps into your soul. And what seeps into your soul is often the thing that you decide to make your career. You know, you become a professional in that area. So I saw all of this growing up. And while I struggled, you know, in the 80s to figure out exactly where I was going, by 1989, I realized, you know what, I want to do community work. And I worked with the United Jewish Appeal for seven years, and then ultimately I stopped there. I took a year off, kind of gathering my thoughts and figuring out where I wanted to go with this new organization of mine. Um, and ultimately that, you know, spun out into being uh, Via Hafta. So I was really comfortable with this pursuit. A lot of people were saying to me, Avram, you're nuts. Like, I was making in 1989 60, 60 grand a year. Uh, that was that was decent. That wasn't bad. That was pretty good. And people would say, why, why would you want to leave that and go on something where you're making zero? Because <laughs> that's exactly what I was making. I didn't, I didn't get paid, not for six months. I had to raise the money to pay myself, right? <laughs> but uh, it all made sense to me, and it was very much something that not only was I comfortable with, that I really, really wanted to pursue. Look, I looked at the world, and, and, and what is my world? My world is Toronto, it's Ontario, it's Canada. Maybe by extension, it's Israel, being in a few other places like Mexico, California, New York. But my world's not that huge. So I looked at the world and I thought to myself, how is it possible that in Toronto, in Canada, there's no Jewish humanitarian organization? It doesn't make sense. And obviously, I asked that question from the starting point of what I saw in Kitchener, what I experienced in my parents' home, Kathy and Debbie, all that stuff, right? And the answer that came to me, okay, is, well, then start it. And this question came to me in 1994 during the Rwanda genocide and during the war in the Balkans. And man, alive, what, what can you say about that? That was shit. That was shit. I mean, we live 85 years, and we're going to see some genocides. And, of course, our parents and grandparents saw wars, some of them major wars, world wars. And they're all absolutely shit. I, I, I can't possibly imagine 
what people felt who went through them directly, but to look at them, to watch those 100 days in Rwanda where up to a million people were massacred, where a genocide happened. You know, you can't but sit back and say, never again? Really? I know we said it, but I certainly don't see it happening. And the next question being, well, how much power do I have to make things stop or to slow things down or to have an influence on what occurs in a place like Sarajevo or Rwanda or the Congo you know, or Vietnam, can I do anything about it? it? You know, your answer has to be yes. It has to be yes. Because if it's no, well, then what are we doing here? If we don't believe that we have the ability to make changes in our world, sometimes very, very tiny, as in walking an old lady across the street, and other times in a very, very big way, as an example of being part of a rescue, let's say, the answer has to be yes. You, ha- you, you have to believe that you can make changes. You have to believe that. Again, because if you don't, then the world is hopeless. Then we uh, have nothing to look forward to. Then our vision is nothing. And I answer that question by saying, okay, you know what? I'm going to launch a Jewish humanitarian organization. Just to take a step back for a second, I did my first humanitarian project, and it was on behalf of the the Jewish people of Sarajevo. There were two or three times where the Jewish agency, as well as the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, these are major, major Jewish humanitarian organizations, went into Sarajevo Sarajevo with a convoy of buses and literally rescued, bust out 350 or 400 people at a time um, to safety. And, And the beautiful thing about this was that a vast majority of these people who were rescued were not Jewish. They were not Jewish. There was a story about an older older woman who was rescued. I think she was about 90 years old. Uh, she was Muslim, and she was living in Sarajevo, and she came out on one of those buses, one of those convoys, and they brought her to Israel. Well, I guess she was dissatisfied with Israel, and that happens from time to time. So she went back to the former Yugoslavia, and guess what? There was another rescue that happened later on. She was rescued again, and I guess someone on the bus said, listen, hey, stay in Israel this time. We need the seat. You know what I mean? Don't come back. So she stayed in Israel. And the beautiful thing about this story, plus, 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 and they told the story later on. I love when this stuff comes out. You know, this is exciting stuff behind the scenes, right? Is that she had been involved in rescuing Jewish lives during the Second World War. Whoa. Like, is there a symbiosis there? You know, does this thing rhyme? Is there a rhythm to it? Absolutely. And, you know, I was around for this stuff. There, there were a lot of rescues going on at the time that I was working uh, for the Jewish community, the United Jewish Appeal, where I got all my training, actually. And I would wake up and I would read about a rescue in Odessa, And this was during Operation Exodus when we were bringing Jews out 
um, when Perestroika and Glasnost were happening, and the walls of the uh, of communism had fallen, and, and thousands upon thousands upon thousands of Jews came to Israel as well as the diaspora. And in order to get them there, they had to be airlifted. So I was a fundraiser at the United Jewish PL at the time, and I was either watching this stuff, I was reading about it, or sometimes I was even involved in it. I was really fortunate, if you will, in 1994, when the war in Sarajevo and the war in the Balkans was going on, to, uh, to my, my, my bosses at the time uh, said, okay, if you want to go and do uh, some sort of humanitarian venture, if you want to get pharmaceuticals and send them over there, well, then go ahead, which was very, very good of them, and I thank them for that. So I approach Jewishly owned pharmaceutical companies like Apotex, uh, the late Barry and Honey Sherman, God bless their souls, and uh, Nova Farm, Leslie Dan, uh, and he should be well. And I asked them for pharmaceuticals, and ultimately we got tons from them. And we sent them over to the former Yugoslavia where they were distributed to Jew and non-Jew alike. And this happened not only once, it happened twice. Not only did it happen in Sarajevo in the former Yugoslavia, but we also did it in Argentina and other such places. And I'll tell you a very interesting story, by the way. Uh, we uh, did some work in Chad. Uh, Chad neighbors Rwanda. And when the Tutsis tried to escape the Hutus, uh, many of them went into Chad and they would uh, live in a refugee camp there. You know, lots of squalor, lots of poverty, terrible place for children. God knows that. They say the first victim of war is children, and God knows that's true. So anyway, so we decided that we were going to do a little work in Chad. And again, I was at the UJA at the time. I hadn't started Vihafta yet. And I... Uh, I worked with a few people on uh, gathering pharmaceuticals, which we would send to the refugee camps, and we have, we approached Bayer. You know, you know Bayer. You know, sometimes you'll take a Bayer pill if you have a headache, right? And we said to them that we need Cipro, and Cipro is an antibiotic, and it's sort of a, a, an all-inclusive antibiotic, often used for the stomach in some very bad cases. It's very expensive, and there was no knockoff of CPRO at the time. So I phoned Bayer and I spoke to, you know, pro pro probably the individual community liaison and he said, okay, and he didn't say how much. Anyways, I go into work the next day and guess what? A box of CPRO shows up at the office. And I look at this, I go, what? A box? What the hell is this? H how far is this gonna go? We're talking about hundreds of thousands of people in this refugee camp. So I phoned up Bayer and I go, look, I'm calling from the United Jewish Appeal and uh, we need uh, a lot more than one box here. It's not going to go very far. You know, they kind of hemmed an odd. And I said, you know, this is being done through the United Jewish Appeal. Now, why did I say Jewish with such an accent? Is because Bayer had created Cyclone B during the Second World War. And that's the gas that they used to kill many, many Jews. So, you know, Bayer had a lot to repay, uh, really. Like, they had lot, done a lot of bad shit. So I had no qualms whatsoever about uh, being tough with them. And sure enough, the next morning I come into work and, like, skids of this stuff comes in. <laughs> and this is expensive stuff. 
Cpro. It was then and it is now, but I believe there's probably knockoffs now. And there was none at that time, as I said. So we sent this all over to Chad and ultimately uh, it was used. Interesting thing too about Cpro was that the, what they used to do with this pill, it's, it's a big one, you know, it's, it's not a horse pill, but it's kind of halfway between that and what we would take. They would break it in half and they would get, give half in the morning and half later on in the day. Um, and the reason for this is because it was getting sold on, on the black market there. So they wanted to make sure that, uh, that that wouldn't happen. So they give you half now and they give you half later. Nobody was going to buy half a pill. So that was that. So that was my sort of foray into humanitarian work. And there were many people who were involved in that. Um, I'm a little faint to mention mention them because I'll ultimately forget some. And uh, But there were, and they know who they are and were and uh, accolades to them. And then finally, I left uh, the UJ in 1996, seven years in. Uh, I took the year off, as I mentioned, and I um, started via Havta uh, at the end of 96 going into 97. You know, I never really knew what I was going to do. <laughs> like I tell the story of I'm sitting at a desk in an office that was uh, donated to us by uh, Dave Green, a Greenwind Construction, and they did this for a number of years, um, and we're thankful to them too. And I, and I said, you know, I, I was waiting for the phone to ring <laughs> for someone to call and say, hey, can we use your help? I mean, that wasn't exactly the truth. But, you know, it occurred to me at some point, okay, we have a logo. <laughs> you know, we have a mission statement and uh, we're all legal and we have a nonprofit charitable status. Everything had to be done properly. Now, what, what the hell are we going to do? <laughs> Anyways, here's what we did. The very first program was initiated through and brought to us by uh, Dr. Michael Silverman. Michael Silverman is a really interesting guy. He's now head of infectious diseases in London, Ontario region. He's a brilliant, brilliant guy. He's He's been published, I think, 50 times in various different journals and has come up with solutions to things that have pr probably saved thousands of lives I um, I'm, he's a friend of mine. He's a buddy, and we go way back. He, you know, we often the, the, he saved my life, and I saved his life. And I, I'm not really going to go into that too much, but suffice it to say, when you got a buddy who saved your life, a guy had a heart attack. I was in the hospital, and they weren't doing the right thing. And he came in, he read them the riot act, and he made a huge stink. And Michael can, Michael can be loud and aggressive. He can get you to do what, what he needs you to do. And ultimately, they ship me off to another hospital and save my, my life. Um, and I saved his life, too. He was going through a really difficult personal time. He came to live with me, and uh, that, that was quite an experience, something we'll never forget. So we have this bond between us, and it's a very powerful, strong bond. I don't know if, if you've ever had that. You'll know, you'll know what I'm talking about. People like have gone through Auschwitz or have gone through wars, um, can tell you about that type of bond that you have with a friend. Military people often speak about that, you know, how the greatest time in their life was when they were in the military because of the camaraderie that they had with their buddies and the fact that he saved my life and I saved his life. And you never forget that stuff, right? That that just stays with you forever. So that's who Michael and I are to one another. So Michael was the original board member. And he was working out of Lake Ridge Health Center in Oshawa. And he came to me and he said, look, uh, there's a doctor at Lake Ridge 
Dr. Roy Russell. Uh, Roy was probably in his 70s at the time, I'm going to guess. And he and his wife, Blakey, had been going to places like Haiti and Guyana for a number of years, sort of taking stuff from the hospital, <laughs> you know, like old beds, you know, uh, or pharmaceuticals that had been expired, repackaging them and taking them to these very, very poor environments. I mean, Haiti is really considered to be the, the poorest place in the Western Hemisphere. And Guyana is like its sister right next to it. It's really a very, very poor, poor place. You know, we in Toronto or in Ontario and Canada, we get medical assistance of about $1,000, $1,200 per year per person. In Guyana, it's like eight cents per person. You know, I often say when I'm speaking to kids especially, I go, look, how long does it take for an ambulance to show up to your house if, God forbid, somebody's sick? You know, people put up their hand. Oh, yeah, I know an ambulance came in three minutes, you know. Way to go. Oh, uh, yeah, well, this ambulance took a long time. It took eight minutes. Oh, yeah, that's a drag. Well, I say, in Guyana, how long do you think it takes? And they go, half hour, 45 minutes. Does it take an hour? I go, no, dear, it doesn't take an hour. It doesn't take half hour. It doesn't come. There aren't ambulances. And you can imagine if you have a child that's sick, a child that's sick, and, it, and that child needs medical care, and there's nobody to call. How out of control you must feel. I can't even imagine it. And again, this goes back to the whole thing of the blessings that we have for living where we live and the resources that, we, that are available to us. Never, ever, ever forget that. It behooves you, behooves me. The next time that I go over to Metro and I pick up a banana, just to look out, out, out the window up at the sky and say, thank you for this banana. It's there if I want it. I'm going to eat it when I want it. If I want another one, I'm going to go buy another one. You know, I walk outside here at night. I'm not being sought after by the police. I'm not worried about the military. I mean, how many times in history has this happened? Not too many. So count your blessings, be aware of them, and don't keep them to yourself. Share it with others. What do they call it? Push it, work it forward, or push it forward. Anyway, so Michael comes to me, he says, so so Blakey and Roy have been doing this, but both of them have, have since passed. They should rest in peace. And they, uh, they want our help. <laughs> I said, well, shit, this is good. We have something to do, you know? And I said, let's do it. Um, and, and I was, I'm very much of a person who knows how to delegate. Much of it has to do with maybe not wanting to do the work myself. <laughs> it's, it's another way, it's another, another way to say delegate, right? <laughs> Lazy, I guess. <laughs> so I said, okay, Michael, let's do this. You put together uh, a team of medical personnel. Um, we'll get the pharmaceuticals. I was working with a volunteer at the time, Randy. And uh, we'll put the two together and we'll, we'll send this team down to Guyana for 10 days or 12 days. And we'll work in what was called Region 7. We figured all these logistics out. Bartica was the area that we worked in. We also worked in the rainforest later on. And indeed, that's exactly what happened. <laughs> so Randy and I went out to the pharmaceutical companies, which you know, like Apotex and Novafarm. And we went out to others and we went out to a nonprofit who distributed medical um, stuff. Michael put together a really good team made up of doctors and nurses, a pharmacist. Each team that we subsequently sent had a pharmacist as well. 
Uh, sometimes an OT would go. And their responsibility was to set up clinics. I guess you might want to call them like MASH units. And they would find various different places in Region 7, schools, churches, buildings that were no longer being used. And they would turn them into these mini clinics or mini hospitals. And they would use the desks in schools and the tables and, you know, halls and use sheets for curtains so that they could get some assembly of privacy. Uh, they had this pharmacy pharmacy that they brought along with them, sometimes half a million, sometimes a million, sometimes more in pharmaceuticals. And they would open it up, and every single day, doctors would, you know, work with individuals who sometimes had walked for miles and miles with one kid on one hip and another kid on another hip showing up to our clinics. And they would determine what they could do to help them within our purview. And they would go to our pharmacist and say, okay, you need to write a prescription for this. And they would. And they would disseminate the appropriate uh, pharmaceuticals or, or do whatever we needed to do. And there were times where there were some serious crises going on. I remember, I believe Sarah uh, Zeltzer told me, she was the director of our international work. Sarah was the internet... Sarah was the director of our international work after Rachel Lassery, both of whom did a brilliant job. About a child, they told us, or she told us about a child who had come in who had been burnt. Terrible thing, fallen into very uh, into hot water. And uh, we actually, at that time, this was later on uh, in our work in Guyana, had a satellite phone and we were able to hook up with Sick Kids Hospital in Toronto, and um, you know, uh, get advice from them as to how to deal with the situation, and we did, and we saved that kid's life. And it wasn't the only child or person's life that we saved. We also went into prisons, and we dealt with some serious infectious diseases there. It was really, really quite a program, and there was an awful lot of meaning behind it. Because there we were, uh, Jewish and non-Jewish doctors and medical personnel, uh, going down to this really godforsaken place. It's a beautiful country. I mean, there's rainforest there, place of a thousand people and place of a thousand rivers. That's how we used to travel up the rivers in boats and really have the chance to help in one way or another. One of the things we did was uh, we had a vitamin A program. And essentially, vitamin A is something that you and I get through cereals and other such foods. And if you don't have enough vitamin A, it's, it's, it's really bad. Like you can go blind. I believe if it's extreme enough, you can also lose your life. So what we did was <laughs> we went to a Jewish school here in Toronto. It's called CHAT. It's, it's a high school, private high school, private Jewish high school. And we worked with the teachers and the principals and we said, look, why, why don't you create a Flintstones day and, and, and give all the students the opportunity to come dress like Fred or Wilma or Betty or Barney, you know, and, and by the same token, they also have to bring a bag of Flintstones vitamins again, which has vitamin A in it. So they said, sure, let's do it. And we did. And we got a ton of Flintstones vitamins. We repackaged them. Everything had to get repackaged. 
for sake of transportation. And also when you're in these countries, you know, uh, at the border, they want to see this stuff and you have to be prepared to show it and let them know what it is. So we took this down there and we uh, distributed vitamin A. And the beautiful thing about this program, which was initiated by Dr. Michael Silverman, was that you didn't have to distribute a lot of it. One of the criticisms that was levied at us was that, look, you guys were doing Band-Aid stuff, you know. So you go down there, you give out a, a you know, a Barney Rubble vitamin. Well, that's great. But what happens when the kid needs it again? Well, in this case, and, and sometimes that was true. Sometimes we were doing Band-Aid stuff for sure. But but in this case, the vitamin A uh, in that little Barney would last, I think, for a year or maybe two or three of them would. My numbers could be off. But what I do know is that they were helpful. And Michael would often do studies on these programs and the the numbers would often reflect something very positive in terms of the care that we were giving. We went back to Guyana f- for many years and set up clinics there. And, you know, I got to tell you, Roy and Blakey were instrumental in making Guyana what it was for Via Hafta. As I stated before, it was the really the genesis it was it was the beginnings of via hafta you know when we first uh, uh visited guyana and this would not have happened without these two lovely beautiful people who have since left our earth and of course liaison between them and via hafta was michael silverman who continues to this day to do international work um he later took us to zimbabwe where we worked with Dr. Howard Thistle. And that in itself, just by itself, like they say in Hebrew, Dainu, that would have been enough to make Via Hafta uh, successful from its inception. We worked at the Howard Hospital where Paul Thistle was the chief of staff and pretty much everything else. It was, uh, you know, Zimbabwe is also one of the poorest nations in the world totally blundered by its uh, former president, Robert Mugabe. Just a terrible, tragic, tragic story of a country that could have been great and perhaps will be one day. But we would send volunteers over to Zimbabwe who would work with Dr. Paul Thistle, uh, a doctor who was originally from Scarborough, Ontario, which is a suburb of Toronto, and uh, who went to Zimbabwe as, as a Salvationist through the Salvation Army, married a woman from Zimbabwe, ultimately had three boys, beautiful boys, and stayed there uh, and has been there for his entire career. He does surgery. <laughs> oh, he does pretty much anything and everything there is to do in a hospital. His wife is a nurse. They're no longer at the Howard Hospital. That's a story in of itself. Uh, they're at another uh, clinic hospital in Zimbabwe, and they continue to do fine, fine work. And many, many people here in Ontario, places like Peterborough, Ontario, continue to work together with Dr. Paul Thistle and raise money for him and for his efforts to help the people of Zimbabwe, at least in that area. Uh, the Howard Hospital was in an area called Glendale. And um, just like Guyana. You know, people would walk from far and wide with their children to get care 
from a man who was very, very adept at what he did and what he does, and also very deeply, deeply caring. We had we sent a volunteer to Zimbabwe early on. Rachel was, was her name or is her name, and she was a doc, a doctor. And she actually delivered uh, twins. And guess what? They were connected, what we call Siamese twins. And she put a process in place to start or try to bring those kids to Toronto, to the Sick Kids Hospital, to be separated. Uh, that work was done together with Via Hafta. And we worked together with the Herbie Fund, which is an organization that helps kids from far and wide to come to sick kids and get the care that they need. You know, it's really it's sort of one of a kind hospital. I mean, it's really, really well known for its incredible work with children. So the kids came here and I saw them. <laughs> if you've ever seen Siamese twins, like you're blown away by the fact that there are two little kids in front of you that are attached. And in this case, they weren't attached from the head. I, I honestly can't remember where they were attached from, but they were attached. And uh, we dealt with their mom, who was here with them, beautiful woman, lovely person. And we went through that whole process. We got the family a place to stay with a Orthodox Jewish woman here in on Bath off Bathurst Street in Toronto. And went through the operation, and thank God, they were separated. And we get reports back here and there that they're grown up now or close to their 20s, and they're doing fine. Now, I'll tell you something. When you are involved in work like that, it's not selling widgets, and there's nothing wrong with selling widgets. This is not what I was particularly created, created for. Uh, and I remember when I was younger, you know, really thinking that I wanted to change the world. And I looked at it from very much of a universal perspective. And I thought, how am I going to do that? And then so when Via Hafta, the concept Via Hafta started to build, uh, and we ultimately launched the organization, I was able to see the possibilities, you know. Ne 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 never think that you can't do anything, right? Because, uh, you know, concepts like this always start with one or two people, and if they get going, man, can they roll, and Via Hafta did. We, I say, uh, I guess without humility, man, we saved a lot of lives, we helped a lot of people. We were in Zimbabwe in HIV AIDS, uh, was very, 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 very rampant. There was no cure to it, and we worked together with Dr. Michael Silverman on what was called a mother-to-child uh, transmission protocol, essentially figuring out a way where we could limit the transmission of HIV AIDS from mother to child uh, after birth or during birth, if you will. Um, and Michael, you know, he looked at the literature that was out there and looked at things that had been tried and he kind of morphed them a little bit and he would take from here and cut and paste and sew it together and intellectually, you know, consider, well, what if I did this? And ultimately came up with a protocol, which was really simple, really inexpensive, uh, required some AZT, which was the drug of the day. And uh, we were able to help decrease transmission of HIV AIDS from mother to child at birth uh, really inexpensively. And people whom we knew 
who had supplied us with pharmaceuticals prior to that were willing to do the same uh, for this protocol. Uh, we had an incredible situation with Apotex, who gave us just a shitload of AZT, <laughs> which was stopped in South Africa um, by a major pharmaceutical company who said Apotex did not have the right to make AZT as a knockoff and to distribute it. Anyways, long and short of it, uh, Michael negotiated the release of this AZT. This pharmaceutical, pharmaceutical company agreed to let it go, and he uh, didn't mince words with them. He did not. <laughs> he basically said, wouldn't this be terrible if it, if it was on the front page of the New York Times? <laughs> There's no bullshit to this boy. <laughs> and they acquiesced, and they just simply asked uh, Barry Sherman, the owner of Apotex, who since passed away, to uh, just stay quiet about the entire thing, and Barry did. Never said a word about it, even though he was pretty riled. You know, sort of the big bully pharmaceutical company trying to stop him from doing his work. Um, and we ultimately got the AZT to Zimbabwe and went ahead with our protocol, and it was successful. And it wasn't the only protocol that we were involved in or that Michael launched. Uh, there were many. And he used, to he used to show me medical journals where this stuff was published. And, you know, what the hell did I know about any of this? You know, like I said, I just delegate. <laughs> I'm just sort of the this, the guy in the middle. People say, hey, let's do this. I go, yeah, that's good. Do it. Don't bother me again. <laughs> you know? But anyways, he would show me medical journals. You know, at the end of it, when a paper is published, it shows the credits. And uh, there is uh, Via Hafta in many of them. So, you know, it's suffice it to say this was a blast. I couldn't have asked for more exactly what I wanted to accomplish in life up to that point. It really, really was. I, I wanted to work internationally. I wanted to work at home, helping the homeless. And ultimately, Via Hafta went that route. And if you've ever been in a situation where you have been so fulfilled by what you are doing and you feel that every moment is glorious, that's what it was like for me. It was golden, absolutely golden. Everything about Via Hafta shone. And I remember telling uh, my girlfriend at the time, Raza, I said, take a look at that uh, coat stand in the corner there that we had just purchased. And an Aztecian clock that we had put on the wall. I said, that's the first coat stand and the first Aztecian clock of the first Jewish humanitarian organization in Canada ever. So I said, imprint this moment on your mind because you'll never see it again. You don't see firsts a second time. And that, that was my life. That was Via Hafta. That was Michael. That was Dr. Roy Russell. That was Paul Thistle. You, you know, at some point where you start to sort of gather your names, the people who you've gone through life with and had a significant impact on it, th th those are the names, the Sarah Zeltzers of the world, Rachel Lasseries. Oh, my God, the chair people of Via Hafta, uh, Paul Lindzens, who helped pull the organization through. He was an MBA, and he became the chairperson, and he did a splendid, splendid job calming me down and helping me understand what needed to be done in order to make the organization work. You know, we had to fundraise, right? And if you want to start an organization, don't do it unless you know how to fundraise because that is key 
you know, toward the, uh, the, the, the constant breath of the organization. It can't breathe without cash. Call it what you will. That's the way life works. And uh, we went out and we asked people for money and we asked people for donations. And a lot of times I was turned down, but a lot of times I wasn't. I think in the first four years or five years of operations, we had uh, probably went through the type of growth, which was through the roof, really. We did like 120% growth the first year, 100% growth the second year, 75% growth the third year, maybe 45 or 50% growth the, the following year and so on. Now, eventually that leveled off and then things started to get really super hard, really hard <laughs> as things go. I mean, everything's a cycle, right? But in the beginning years, man, whoa, it was great. It was great. I remember getting $5,000 from this woman, our very first $5,000 donation. And you know why we got it? Because she wanted me to go out with her daughter. <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> um, but she still gave us the five grand and she got a taxable receipt, charitable taxable receipt for it, which was cool. I remember going to a man who made um, men's clothing, very, very affluent, wealthy fellow, and forgetting to wear my jacket. And I went into a dry cleaners and I said to them, hey, I'm wondering if someone has left, you know, a jacket here that I could either buy or take. And you, you got to figure in dry cleaning offices and dry cleaning places, you know, they always have stuff left over. The first person kicked me out. They thought I was nuts. I went to the second dry cleaner. Similar thing. And finally, in the third one, the guy goes, oh, yeah. He goes, we have a beautiful English tweed jacket that you can have. You can have the pants, too. $25. <laughs> I said, it's okay, man. I don't want the pants, you know, because they always itch your crotch, you know, English tweed. But I took the jacket. And I went to this man's office, you know, all dressed to the nines. Um, the canvas didn't go so well. <laughs> I gave him my best pitch. And you can imagine how excited I was in those days. And he said to me, no, I'm sorry. I'm not going to give you any money. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, you know what? I, I really have to put everything here on the table. And I said to him, well, let's say his name was Goldstein. Mr. Goldstein, I said, you started this company, right? He goes, yes, I did, son. I said, well, when you started it, you, you, you were the new kid on the block. Would that be accurate? Yes, it is. It is accurate. I said, and wasn't there someone who kind of stepped up? to help you out and they did so because they were kind of proud of your efforts. He goes, oh yes, indeed there was. So I said to him, well, sir, you can be that man. Uh, I am the first guy on the street, started a Jewish humanitarian organization in Canada and you can be that guy to help me on the street. And he looked at me, he said, I'm sorry, I'm not giving you any money. <laughs> I said, okay, I had nothing more to say, and I left his office. But, you know, you don't give up, right? It's like hockey players say, well, you know what? I, I We lost the third game, but damn it, we're going to go in there and play the fourth game uh, like, it's, like, like it's the only game of our lives. And, and that's what would happen. I remember sitting with a donor once. Again, you just you just keep moving forward. I remember sitting with a donor once. And he, was, he said to me very astutely and very wisely, and this taught me a lot, he said, you know, what you just told me about your organization, you realize there was someone sitting in that same chair half hour ago telling me the exact same thing about their organization. I think, yeah. I said to him, yeah, you know, I, I, I understand that. People are going to pitch their organizations with a lot of verve, 
and a lot of excitement and enthusiasm, but there's something different about Via Hafta, and here's what it is. And I figure, okay, you know what, I, I probably sold them on this. And he looks at me, he goes, you know something? That person who was sitting in that chair half hour ago, I go, yeah. Well, he said the same thing as you too, <laughs> the same thing, the, the same thing you just said. I said, oh, <laughs> okay. He said, listen, the, the, the lesson here is that there are a lot of organizations out there, a lot of who, whom are doing fine, fine stuff. And you have to make sure that you're unique. You have to make sure you sell yourself really well. And you really have to find the difference between you and others. You know, I thought just by definition that we were doing a Jewish organization doing work in Zimbabwe or Guyana. There was nobody else doing that. But, you know, that didn't suffice to him. That work that we were doing was helping, you know, was what we call Tikkun Olam. And there are a lot of organizations that help, maybe not in Zimbabwe, but in downtown Toronto or downtown Israel, Tel Aviv, in Haifa, who knows, New York City, whatever it happens to be. So he taught me a lot. And I think in the end, he gave me a thousand bucks and he told me I couldn't approach him again for 10 years. <laughs> so good luck when you're fundraising, man. It can be a pleasure. And when you get money, you feel great. But it's not always a pleasure, that's for sure. I kind of got burned out on it at some point. And our major donor is a beautiful guy who decided that he would give us $5,000 online after a major crisis. I think it was Haiti. Well, I phoned him up. I think it was after Christmas. I gave him a call. And I said, how you doing? Thank you so much for the $5,000. We're really grateful. I'd love to meet you. He said, okay. And we did, and we talked. Anyways, about a year went by, and I presented him with a menu list of items, hoping that he would give us again. And the menu list of items was worth probably combined about five different things we were doing, about $100,000. I said, is there something on here that you would like to underwrite? He said, you know what? I'll take them all. <laughs> I said, okay. Wow. That does not happen. It does not happen in the world of fundraising. And he took them all and he gave us a hundred grand. The next year comes around. I show him a menu list of items again. And I said, would you like to underwrite one of these? And I think it was worth 150,000. He said, I'll take them all. And this went on for two or three years until he got up to a quarter of a million dollars. And he gave us that for somewhere around eight or 10 years, somewhere around three and a half, four million dollars combined. And I have to tell you something, at the end of the day, his work is as important as my work. The work of our current CEO, I've stepped down. I'm now the ambassador. Uh, her work is paramount to run the organization, but her partner is that man. And it's all those people who contribute financially or lend some resources to us. It's, it's just a truism that... <laughs> Things require money, and nothing is going to move forward without it. Now, that goes without saying that other aspects of life can, you know, contribute to, to, to Via Hafta and other such things. Clearly, kindness, generosity of spirit uh, are, are important to making the organization right, run. But in terms of, you know, the buying power, the actual spending, we want to get volunteers to Zimbabwe. Uh, you know, we have to pay for it. If we wanted to have clinics in Guyana, in Bardic Hour in the rainforest, we had to pay for it. 
We have a homeless initiative. We have a van that takes volunteers out into the street. It's really expensive. We need to pay for it. That money comes from donors. In Hebrew, it's called tzedakah. Tzedakah is charity, but really it translates directly to mean just. You're doing what you're supposed to do. Somebody is not eating. You are. Give them some food. Okay? That's what tzedakah is. Just a little bit about the homeless initiatives that we do. We now do strictly local stuff, via Hafta does. We don't do international stuff. It was just too arduous. It was too bulky, uh, very expensive. And, you know, sometimes we looked at the, I guess, the value of it in terms of what we'd accomplished, and it, it just was so expensive, and we weren't getting enough out of it. So we went local. We have a van that takes volunteers out into the street every single night to help the homeless and it's loaded up with food and drink and clothing and books. There were days where we had glasses on there, all kinds of things. And we go where the homeless are or where those people living on the street live, if you will. We have what's called the VSA, the Via Hafta Street Academy, and that's a school for the homeless. And it's run in concert with a local college. Uh, we have uh, either three or four semesters a year. And it's really quite incredible. They're eight week blocks. I do a course on inspiration. Uh, we've had Ron McLean of Hockey Night in Canada come down and talk about his own career and his own challenges and, and lend some inspiration to our students, many of whom had been on the street or some of whom were still on the street or living in shelters. And he was uh, always really, really quite something, Ron was. I have great respect for him. He's brilliant. Take a look for his, I think he's got a couple books out there. Uh, very well worth reading. One of the things that he says he talks about agape love, the idea that I love you because you're God's creation. And he Basically, he loves everybody equally, and that's really quite something, quite a feat, and I believe he does. If you've ever watched them on Hockey Night in Canada, he's a very embracing sort of fellow, and he doesn't seem to distinguish between one person or another. He just seems to embrace everybody. He tells a great—he he told a great story in one of our VSA classes about uh, Don Cherry was in China at the Olympics— and his wife, Rose, was uh, very sick, and she was. Uh, he got a call that she was about to die. So he flew back to Toronto. Anyways, Ron McLean was approached by Bobby Orr, the great Bobby Orr, uh, at these games. And, he, and Bobby says to Ron, where, where is, where's Don? He says, well, you know, Rose is really sick, and, and Don's had to go home. Anyways, so Bobby Orr saw, saw how verklempt, saw, saw how upset Ron was. And he knew that he had to go on the air in a few minutes. And that's not an easy thing to do when you're down, depressed, you know, sad. It's, it's really not easy to do at all, especially when you have to be up about the games. This is a sport. So he says, Bobby, you turned to him. He goes, you know what, Ron? I just met a fan and I was talking to him. And while I was talking to him, he was took a bite out of his hot dog which was covered in mustard, and the mustard spritzed all over my brand new, you see this, this my brand new jacket. Uh, and I'll tell you, man, it was hell to wash the, uh, to get the, the mustard off here. Ron goes, well, Bobby, you know, that's terrible. That man should have been more responsible with his mustard. And he sort of managed to take Ron from a place of much sadness, you know, to a position of, uh, not anger, but but like, you know, coming together with his friend and just sort of shifting where he was at. 
and it really helped. He says, as soon as I went to air, I was feeling a little bit better. I got done and rose off my mind because <laughs> I kept thinking about that mustard on Bobby's suit. So these are some great stories that Ron McLean would tell. And all kinds of other things that we've done with the homeless over the years. Home, we've had retreats. Um, we've had art shows, uh, creative writing contests for the homeless. We have a passive, Passover Seder for the homeless. The creative writing contest for the homeless was pretty cool. We, we've had some pretty auspicious judges over the years, like Margaret Atwood, a uh, well-known author in her own right. Yeah, that was really cool. You know, really, really cool. Uh, you, you'd you'd watch these people come off the street and write a piece that very often was very poignant, very often very raw, and it would be judged by these individuals who had done some world class stuff in their lives. Michael Andante was a judge, and I often ask people, I say, how do you think Michael Andante judged? creative writing pieces from the homeless. Do you think he was tough? Do you think he was, if you will, authentic in terms of his commitment to good writing? If he didn't write well, well, he would mark you low. Or, or do you think he was different? Do you think he, his compassion was the filter that he used to mark those pieces? And therefore, regardless of whether your grammar was good or not, or your spelling was good or not, or you missed out on some good metaphors, did he give you a chance and give you a high mark? And people will guess all different kinds of things. I'll give you a chance to guess. I'll count to five, okay? One, two, three, four, five. Well, Michael Andanche was loyal to his craft. <laughs> I remember looking at his marks thinking, oh, shit, man. Some people are going to be so bummed out by this. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think they appreciated it. But can you imagine being marked by Michael Andanche? Holy crap. Anyways, we are uh, well into this interview, and there is a lot more to say. I'll probably do a second show on Viahafta at some point, but we did cover a lot of ground, and I want to take this opportunity to thank every single individual who was ever involved in Viahafta and really uh, made this clock run. It, it, it could not have been what it is without the volunteers, the, without the donors, without the professionals. You know, without the, 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 the generosity of spirit of so many of our clients, without countries like Guyana that allowed us in and Zimbabwe, the pharmaceutical uh, companies, uh, I mean, say what you want about them. You know, they gave us a ton of stuff and that stuff went to help an awful lot of people. So it's been a hell of a ride. And I thank God for every minute of it, even though it was really, really, really tough. Uh, I had two heart attacks along the way. <laughs> it's uh, it's really tough. Like when you watch someone, you know, and they do well in something, really you d take into consideration that there's always a cost <laughs> to what they do. But, you know, obviously in this case, I'm delighted uh, that I was involved in Via Huff. I'm so happy that I was able to launch it and uh, being, being able to watch it all of those, all these years. And I'm, I'm really happy that I've been able to do this show. I really am. Because I've tried to write a book on this, and let's just say I'm a little bit slow at certain things. So the book's been in the makings for, <laughs> making for, makings for years. Um, I don't know if it's ever going to get written, but this is here. <laughs> so if people want to know about the inner workings of Yahafta, you can through this. So I want to thank you for listening to this one-man show. Uh, it's been a delight. I've quite enjoyed it. I realize how much I like to talk, and I actually had something to say, which is nice. 
Uh, remember Neely's Tullesis? You really consider um, getting one from her because they're 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 absolutely stunning. And uh, there, there's another thing I want to tell you too. Here, I got a piece of paper, just just for your own edification. Uh, just a couple things here. Take a look up look up George Daniels on the internet. He was a watchmaker, uh, and he taught himself to make watches, and he was one of the best in his day. Um, what else? Um, Jason Freed is one of the co-founders of a company called uh, Basecamp. They do a lot of applications with websites, scheduling, things like that. Here's an interesting thing. He doesn't prepare his speeches. So when he's asked to speak at a conference, he will not write a speech. He says, I get too way too anxious leading up to the conference having to write a speech. So basically what I tell the people who are coordinating it is, look, I'll, uh, I'll take Q&As and uh, I'll be interviewed on stage. I, I thought that was really interesting. These are just little tidbits of life. And I think I'm going to do that. I think I'm going to stop preparing my speeches. Not that I write them down. I never really take notes, but that's a cool idea. Just take some Q and A's and be interviewed and you're good to go. Um, yeah. Who makes you feel good for a day and who makes you feel good for a week or even longer? That's one of the questions I found on another podcast. And, uh, I thought that was a decent question. You know, we all have people in our life who make us feel marvelous for a moment. And then there are people who we are with and you go, God, I'm, I'm still feeling great after a day or after a week having been with that person. So think about that. Who makes you feel great? And then finally, f- find your own personal via hafta. Make sure that as you go through this world, as you go through your life and life is short, that you develop something for yourself, setting an objective on how to make this world a better place to do tikkun olam. And pursue it with a vengeance. Uh, you know, it's, it's it's like a campsite. You want it to look better when you leave than when you came. <laughs> and that's what humanitarian work is all about. Giving, sharing, volunteer work, call it whatever you want. There are opportunities out there. And if you ever thought to yourself, you know what? I'd really love to read to the visually impaired. I know my sister wants to do that. Well, then do it. Do it. You know, if you've ever said to yourself, I really want to build a bus for those people living on the street so that they can shower every day and, you know, do their toiletry stuff, well, then do it. And guess what? I know someone who just did. Like, this stuff does get done. You can do it. All you have to do is say, I'm going to do it, right? Or on a smaller level, you know, if you just want to visit an old man living in a senior's home who never gets visitors, damn it, just go and do it. You, you, you can't possibly imagine what you're bringing to that person's life. So thanks for listening. we got some great shows coming up. You've been listening to Hat Radio, and it is the show that schmoozes. God bless. Avram Rosenzweig began public speaking when he was five years old. Over the last five decades, Avram has mastered the art of public speaking, Today, Avram is a professional speech writer and speech coach. He offers a wide selection of services that can assist you in preparing for public speaking events, speeches for family or professional occasions, a keynote, a memorial, or a simple toast. Avram can also coach you through articulation and presentation challenges. For all your speech writing needs, send Avram an email at 
info at hatradio.ca. That's info at hatradio.ca. You've been listening to Hat Radio with Avram Rosenzweig, sponsored by Goodness and Positivity. Hat Radio, the show that schmoozes. Step inside my living room, share a little talk. By roads walked and lessons learned, keeping the flame of faith burning. I want to know where you've been, what you found out. Spread some light in the darkness, spread it all about in the hat. In the hat, put it all in the hat.